Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. The portion that we are now in, in Genesis 37, is actually the, the second portion that deals with Jacob now being in the land. In the previous portion, Jacob uh, returns from Laban. He has his two wives, their handmaids, and he has his children, and uh, save Benjamin, who's yet to be born. And in the course of him returning, uh, the lesson of that is that there was this great quandary, and what the story of Jacob is always the story of twos. There's always two of something going on in Jacob's life. He has two wives, and he has the consternation of that. He uh, defines himself when he comes back as being that he had crossed over the Jordan going toward Laban as being a single man with a single staff. And now that he's returning, he's returning with two camps. He's returning with literally two sets of tents. And what he's referencing is that he has Leah, his wife, with her children. He has Rachel with her children. He has two camps. He has, has two groups that are with him. That's how he defines himself. And that begins the number twos that begin to follow through. And we're going to see some other examples of the number 2, 20, 200, 2,000, always having to do with Jacob. Now, to simplify it for you in the study, let me just jump to the uh, punchline and tell you that the great spiritual lesson that's being taught to us about through those number 2s and those most significant addition 2s is to be balanced in our relationship between God and man. You will later find out that Moses will receive two tablets, on five commandments are the commandments of God, our relationship with God. The other set of uh, the other tablet is the commandments of our relationship with men. What God is always kind of trying to teach us is that our relationship with God is dependent upon our relationship with men is and vice versa. You can't go around saying you love God if you hate a man or vice versa. There, there has to be balance. And Paul says this for us in Acts, where he says, Herein do I exercise myself continually to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. And Jacob is a whole series of lessons about these conflicts of two. On the one hand, in last week's lesson, he has the promise of God to return to the land. I will prosper you and I will cause your descendants to increase and be prospered so that they'll be as the stars of the sky at night. When he gets ready to come back, he has this wonderful promise from God, but he also has his brother waiting for him who has sworn to kill him. And so he has this conflict. Do I believe the promise of God or am I going to be more afraid of my brother? And so last week's portion was him getting that resolved, coming back to the land and being at peace with his brother Esau. Now Jacob has now come and he's living in the land and he's basically settled in with his family. And and let us begin reading there at Genesis 37. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. 
And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. Now, you, what you could say here is a couple of points about Joseph's life. Uh, Joseph, of course, was born of Rachel. Uh, Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel was the last one to bear sons. Uh, and we have young Joseph here whom uh, is loved and is a reflection of Jacob's great love toward Rachel. And so um, Jacob gets him this multicolored coat, which in the ancient times would have given some indicator that it was his intention, Jacob's intention, to put the best blessing on Joseph, which made the other brethren envious. If you recall, this has been an ongoing struggle and hassle as to who gets the blessing. From Abraham to Isaac, Ishmael got upset. From Isaac to Jacob and Esau got upset. So now we've got 12 brothers. Somebody's going to get upset here, you know, because only one of them is going to get this birthright blessing, this special blessing that will be passed down. And it's pretty obvious that Jacob has every intention of putting it upon Joseph. And the other brethren, uh, for varying reasons, began to get uncomfortable with this. On top of that, uh, it's almost like this young guy who doesn't know, you know enough sense to keep his mouth shut has a dream and proceeds to give the dream as though he doesn't quite know what it means. But his brethren can immediately interpret this dream because it means that they're going to one day bow down to him, of which is the worst thing that you can possibly say to somebody who already feels a little bit envious to you and says, oh, by the way, it's God's plan that you also bow down to me. So... For whatever reasons, you might be able to counsel Joseph and say, well, Joseph, I wouldn't really recommend that you do that or say it quite that way or whatever. We'd probably give him counsel on a better way to say that or explain God's plan for your life. But the fact of the matter is God purposed these things and caused these things to happen. And Jacob contributed to it. Joseph contributed to it. And you could say that the brethren, because of their envy, also contributed to this process. In any case, we have this brewing uh, thing going on. Um, and the stage is now set for calamitous events to begin to take shape. Continuing at verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Shechem is to the north. This was the first area that Jacob and the brethren lived at for some time because they're now living down in Hebron to the south part. So uh, if you put Jerusalem right in the center of Israel, down the mountains of Israel to the south is Hebron, way to the north is Shechem. And they're pasturing the flock in Shechem. And the scripture goes on to say, And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. Then he said to them, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, 
and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Now, before we go any further, this is one of those wonderful places I try to teach you in the Torah that should just flag you and get your attention. I want you to note. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Whenever you see names that are given in the scripture, it's not idle. It means something. There's usually a meaning in the names. And it tells part of the story. That's the reason why Moses has recorded for us. So I want you to take note of right off the bat that he left from the valley of Hebron. There is no valley of Hebron, brethren. Hebron is a mountain. Hebron to the south is a mountainous area. There is no valley of Hebron. If you were to go to Israel and you were to walk up to a bus driver or to a cab driver and you say, take me to the valley of Hebron, he would look at you like you were weird. You don't know what the land is all about. Something's wrong with you. And he would explain to you, there is no valley of Hebron. So what is the scripture trying to say? If you go to the Hebrew, you will find out that the word valley is the Hebrew word emek. Emek means, and we use the word in English, valley, because it's really trying to say is, the deep mystery, the mystery of Hebron. In other words, what this is is a flag to you as a reader, and it's saying you are now, and this is like in neon lights in the Torah, you are now getting ready to be introduced to a deep mystery from the Torah. And it's being very obvious about it. It's being as obvious as can be, like blinking, mystery, Something very fascinating. Something you should be paying real close attention to. It's getting ready to happen. So with the neon lights flashing, let us read on. And a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me, where are they pasturing the flock? Then the man said, they have moved from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Next question, what man? What man? It says a man is there. And the man asked Joseph, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are you looking for? And he has this kind of everyday conversation with this man. And then the man knows the answer. And he says, oh, uh, they went to Dothan. They went that way. What's Dothan mean? Two wells. Dothan means Two wells, but they're special kinds of wells. They're not wells that have water in them naturally. Actually, what they are is two cisterns. They've been dug out and then encased in such a way so that they'll trap water so that they can provide water to the people of the land that we may be using the land in that area. They're not real wells in the sense of that you dip your bucket to get water. They, they're kind of entrapments for water. This one of the two is what Joseph is going to be cast into. In archaeology, modern archaeology, they went looking for this place called Dothan near Shechem, not too far from it, and they found it. And here's what they found. They found two dugout cisterns that had been encased so that it would trap and hold water. And one of them had an inscription on a rock that was unearthed entitled the pit of Joseph, the place where Joseph was thrown into the pit. He was thrown in at Dotham in one of the two wells. Remember the two thing that we'll tie this back in a little bit later. So he goes there, verse 18, and when they saw him from a distance, 
And before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of the hands of them and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to him, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic and very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments and he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all of his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. The story goes from envy to probably the most despicable behavior that you could ever imagine from these men whom we will call in the Bible patriarchs. I mean, they all conspired together. I mean, for Reuben's case, you could make the case that, well, at least he was attempting to uh, save his brother, but he didn't do a very good job. I mean, if he's really the firstborn, why didn't he stand up and tell his other brethren how it is? We'll not do this. We'll not kill him. We'll not throw him in a pit. It was Reuben's idea to throw him in the pit. Well, let's, let's look at Judah. At least he got the idea, well, let's not kill him. He's just in for the prophet. Well, let's, why kill him? Let's sell him. <laughs> That's not any more honorable, by the way. And uh, if you'll note the price, Reuben wasn't present, so there was only 10 left, so he got 20 shekels. That's two apiece. Reuben lost out on the deal. And in the case, they took Joseph, and having, having stripped him, they threw him down in one of these wells where there was no water, and there was no way to climb out. It's like a cistern. It was, the, the sides were slick and smooth and there was nothing to grip. If they don't help you, you can't get out. There's no way to dig. It was like a cistern. It was like almost solid rock in this pit. There was no way. He was subject to whatever they did. And then they sold him. Can you imagine? You know, it's one thing for your siblings not to like you. It's another thing for them to sell you. You know, with regard to the, the chagrin and the harm 
uh, that is being done. And then to cause the deception to their father, the harm they did to their father, to put uh, the, the blood of a goat upon it and rip it to shreds and then take that back. And then the mockery, if you will, of holding up the, what is obviously Joseph's tunic. There was only one like them. No one had one like this. And then to say, well, Jacob, why don't you come and examine it and see, do you, do you think that could be it? Like they don't know. Like nobody reasonable could figure out what this was. And obviously you see the harm that happened to their father. He's so upset that he can't be comforted by anyone. The emotional harm that was done to Joseph, that which was done to their father, you can... You know, at this point, you'd almost stop and say, well, so much for the Bible story. Uh, I guess that's, I mean, I can't think of any more despicable behavior on the part of the patriarchs. I mean, surely there's nothing spiritual or good about this. But I take you back to where Joseph began his journey from the Valley of Hebron, because this is a mystery. Something interesting is getting ready to take place. And any time that we find in the Torah where it tells us it's about a mystery, it's a dead giveaway, especially to us who are in the New Covenant. This is a story about the Messiah because all mysteries are about the Messiah. The New Testament tells us very clearly, Paul wrote this, great Torah scholar, in him, in the Messiah, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's about him. It's just like when he quoted from Psalms 40, verse 7. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the scroll. It's written of me. It's a story about me. That's the Messiah saying. And this is a story about the Messiah. What is the story? Well, it goes something like this. The Messiah will be raised up from amongst the brethren of Israel. He has a destiny to rule. But he will be envied. And hated by his brethren. And they will sell him for a price. And they will cast him down into a pit called hell. Trying to get rid of him. And they will hate him. But he will eventually come out of that pit. And be exalted by God just as Joseph was. To be raised up to rule over all his brethren. And there is a day coming. When not only did the brethren of Joseph have to bow down to Joseph, just as the dream said, but there's a day coming when all of Israel who have rejected and despised the Messiah, every one of them will bend their knee to him and proclaim him to be the king of Israel and the Lord of all lords. It's a story about the Messiah. It's one of the most incredible stories. And I, for the life of me, I don't understand why my New Covenant brethren, when they have opportunity to share the faith with one of my Jewish brethren, why they don't go back to this story. Do you understand the mystery of Joseph being sent by his father? Do you not understand that our Heavenly Father sent his son to do what? Exactly what Jacob sent Joseph to do. Go, check on the welfare of your brethren and see how the flock fares. And that's exactly what Joseph did and that's exactly what Yeshua did. He's the man who was sent. And in fact, from this passage, it will go forward, it will go forward 
into the New Testament and throughout all the prophets, this message of the man that was sent by the father who will go and check the welfare of the flock. It's the great story of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. And so we have this beautiful, incredible story and the picture of the Messiah symbolized in the life of Joseph. Um, let's not be shocked when God, after sending us the Messiah, decides to have his earthly father named Joseph so that he is Yeshua ben Yosef. Yeshua, the son of Joseph. This is like a dead giveaway for those that would follow the Torah and look to the mysteries of the Torah and the wisdom of the Torah. When the Messiah shows up, this ought to just, I mean, just neon signs be blinking all over the place. Hey, you getting the message on this one. Are you getting the message? This is what the story of Joseph is about. Now, having said that, I want to draw out one other thing to you to show you just how strongly this comes across. Do you remember where it says they hated him? Now, there are roles that certain men played, and these are traditional that come from, I've already mentioned some of it. Joseph is a victim. He's the, that's the role he's playing. Reuben, he's the man who says shed no blood, but, but he's lacking courage to do the right thing. Judah is the profiteer, and he's going, let's sell him. But it's Simeon who is the man said, let's kill him. Traditionally, it doesn't say there, it just says they said, but it's traditionally known and accepted by the sages of Israel. It was Simeon who said, let's kill him. Why? Because Simeon's name means hated. And the sages know that it was at this moment that their brethren hated Joseph without a cause. And it was Simeon, the man who at Shechem had slaughtered the inhabitants of Shechem with his brother Levi, whom Jacob will say later, take no counsel from him, for his are the ways of violence. It's Simeon, the man named Hated, who proposed, let's kill him. Let's take our hatred and kill him. Let's hate him without a cause and kill him. Now, I point that out to you because Yeshua specifically tells us in John 15 that they are going to, the world is going to hate you because they hated me without a cause. It says right there, John 15, verse 25, they're going to hate you because they hated me without a cause. But I want you to take note of what it really says there, what Yeshua says. Join with me, John 15, and I'll show you an amazing thing that the Messiah also says with it. John 15 and verse 25. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. In the law could be translated in the Torah. That they will fulfill that which is written in the Torah that they hated me without a cause. Now, if you go looking in your Bible and you go looking for all the places that the expression is, they hated me without a cause or whatever, you're going to find some references in the Psalms. Psalms 35 has that expression. Psalms 109 has something kind of close to it. Psalms 69 has something like that. You won't hear those exact words back in the Torah anywhere. But I'm telling you that it's understood by the sages that at this moment, that that's what Simeon was expressing when he saw Joseph come up. 
that he was living out the meaning of his name, hated, and that he hated Joseph without a cause. And what Yeshua is referring to here is they're going to hate you because they're going to treat you the same way they treated me, the same way their brethren treated Joseph, because that's the part I'm fulfilling. I will be despised. I will be rejected by my own brethren, just as Joseph was. That's the reference that he's making back is to the story of Joseph and how they'll be hated. In last week's portion, the first son who presented himself, the son of Bilhah, who presented himself to Esau, his name was, there actually were two, was Dan and Naphtali. And in that scripture, it says Jacob had, had because he had prevailed with the Lord, he would prevail with uh, Esau, his brother. So guess what Naphtali means? Prevailed. Naphtali was living out the meaning of his name. He's the first one to approach Esau. Prevailed. And now we have Simeon living out the meaning of his name with Joseph hated. Hated without a cause. And it ties in together. These are, uh, I mention these things to you because I want to encourage you in your own personal study. When you read these verses and you see these names and you see these places that are being mentioned, don't gloss over them. Get your study books out, start asking questions and find out what those things mean because they're part of the story. They're part of the enriching part that explains what in the world is going on. Now, the story at this point with Joseph, it kind of got started and then it's going to stop real quickly. It's going to pick itself back up. And the very next chapter, uh, chapter 38, is about another person. It's about Judah. And all of a sudden, it ends with... Here's uh, Joseph sold to Potiphar, the, uh, the captain in charge of the bodyguards of Pharaoh. And boom, we're not talking about Joseph anymore. Now we're going to talk about Judah. And for a lot of um, scholars in times past, they have always said, gee, why did Moses write it that way? I mean, why didn't we have uh, the story of uh, Judah, you know, at one point and do the whole story of Joseph? And well, there's a reason for it. There's a reason why the, the scripture is going to now stop talking about Joseph and start talking about Judah. And if you had, had concentrate on last week's portion where Jacob is defining himself in the form of two camps. Two camps meaning of those of Rachel and those of Leah. And Joseph is of Rachel, but Judah is of Leah. And so we're really talking about the events of the patriarchs who are going to become the two great leaders, the two tribes who are going to become the great leaders of the nation of Israel. The tribe of Ephraim that comes from Joseph and the tribe of Judah, which will come from Judah here of Levi. And so now we're going to talk about events that are in the life of Judah because we're, we're at the same time we're raising up and telling where these patriarchs, these leaders of Israel, what's happening with them and their lives do intersect and they have a destiny that they share together. It will be Judah later on who will lead all of his other brethren to the repentance and the reconciliation with Joseph later. It will be he who will be the leader, you know, of those brethren to return. And uh, so the stage is now set. And we have this very, if you thought the first story that we had about the brethren of Joseph was weird, wait till you hear about Judah uh, and uh, some of uh, his behavior. If you would look with me to now chapter 38. And it came about at that time, making reference to this, making reference back to Joseph. While Joseph is going off to Egypt, this is what's going on with Judah. 
that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. And Judah saw there a daughter of the certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Yeah, Shua. Real close to Yeshua. In fact, it's the same Hebrew name with just out the Yah part. It means salvation. It's the same name of the Messiah. So I'm here to tell you that what we're getting ready to see in the story about Judah, the thing that ties it together with Joseph is because it's about the Messiah again. We're going to see something that's going to be about the Messiah again. So it's really two stories being being about the Messiah. And he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore another same and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chazib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Interesting thing about the name Ur. You know what it means? The first sight. The first sight is what his name means. And it says, in the sight of the Lord, he did something and he lost his life. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Guess what Onan means? Vigorous, full of life. And he goes in and does this despicable thing. Verse 9, and Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing the sight of the Lord, so he, he took his life also. Bing, bing. We lost two sons to Judah right off the bat to this one woman, Tamar. I don't know what she's doing, but I'm losing sons like they're flies dropping here. Judah saying to himself. Verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Salah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brother. So Tamar went and lived in her in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hirah, and the, the Adullamite. And it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat at the gateway of Enam, which is to the road of Timnah. For she saw that Selah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. What is this place, the gateway of Enam? What is that place? That's where Abraham lived. When Abraham lived in this area, he lived there. She's sitting at the gateway to his, one of his fathers, Abraham. That's the reference back to Abraham. Things to do with Abraham. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, Therefore I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hands. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. 
When Judas sent the kid by his friend the Adolamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enam? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah, and he said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, lest we become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this kid, but you did not find her. And now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. This is the same guy who does his own brother in, but now he's righteous, right? I want you to note the contrast. Before he sells his own brother, but in his own house, he passes judgment immediately, condemning others. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And he said, please examine and see Whose signet ring and cords and staff are these? Now, I want you to understand why that is such an interesting question and statement. That was the question that Judah went to his father, Jacob. He said, please examine and see this for yourself. Is this not the tunic that your son wore? Only Tamar now says, please see and examine for yourself. Is this not the cord and the staff and the seal that belongs to you? The questions are almost identical. It's just the substance of a tunic, a blood-soaked tunic versus some things that belong to Judah. I think the reason why Judah immediately stopped in his tracks and said, she is more righteous than I is because at this moment, Judah is starting to take note of, whoa, I've just summarily passed judgment upon another. It is I who should have some summary level judgment passed upon me. And it caused him to stop. What is so fascinating from this particular story is the birth now that comes forth from Judah and Tamar. Verse 27, and it came about at that time that she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about that he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zirah. Perez means he who makes the breach. Zirah means the dawn or the brightness of the day. Now, the pieces that really tie together are this. Perez will become the father down through Judah, the line of the physical line of the Messiah. Messiah Yeshua will be born of the lineage of Judah through Perez. The physical element of the Messiah will come from there. The symbolic part of the Messiah is over with Joseph. The picture of the Messiah is with Joseph, but the real Messiah will come from Judah through Perez, through this breach that will take place. There's a very interesting expression 
that uh, comes from this birth, and it's messianic in its prophetic message. And here's what it says. That Perez precedes the dawning of the day and the brightness of his coming. Think about that for a moment. Perez precedes the dawning of the day and the brightness of his coming. Now, for those of us who study Torah, you can understand why every time we hear about Shimon Perez becoming the prime minister of Israel, we all sit up and take note. Because we have a prime minister, a leader of Israel that bears the same name as the lineage of the Messiah. And we have this prophetic message that says there will be a Perez before the brightness of his coming. And the red thread that they tied on him, there's only one other place that we have in the history of Israel that we have this red thread. We used to take the red thread, it was called the miracle of the red thread. And on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, we would take a piece of red thread and we would tie it on the horn of the scapegoat. And we would take another piece and we would tie it to the door of the temple. And we would take this goat whom we had put the sins of Israel upon. The priest had laid his hands upon. They put the sins, all of the sins of Israel upon. And then this goat is taken out to be cast off, to be cast away. And they would take a fit man who would take it to the wilderness, a place where Joseph had to go to. And he would be discarded. He would be let loose like Joseph was let loose and discarded in the wilderness. Only at the moment that it would take place, the red would change to white. And the fit man would bring that piece of thread back as he released the goat, and he would bring it back, and they would match it to the thread on the doorway of the temple. And it was one of the ten miracles of the temple. And it happened every year at the Day of Atonement up until... And this is very interesting. Up until about 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, the miracle of the red thread would happen up until, and it stopped changing about 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, which would mean that the miracle of the red thread stopped about A.D. 30 or so, which, by the way, is about the time the Messiah Yeshua came to make his atoning sacrifice. To this day, within the Jewish sages, they ask the question, why did we have the miracle, the red thread, and why did it stop about 40 years before the temple was destroyed? And it ties back to the red thread, ties back to this story of the birth of the children of Tamar, because she's one of the mothers of the Messiah. There is a, uh, a, a proverb of sorts, a teaching that comes out of Torah. It says something like this. It says events in the lives of the patriarchs is the destiny and the story of the descendants. In other words, what, happened, what we see happening to the patriarchs is the prophetic pattern and picture of what's going to be happening to the descendants. And one of the most graphic examples of that, of course, is Abraham going down into Egypt 
coming up out of Egypt and then being told by God in Genesis 15 specifically that his descendants will go down into Egypt. They will be enslaved. They'll be down there for 400 years. And in the fourth generation, I, God, will bring them back up out of there. And we can look back and see the whole story of the Exodus. And we know that what the events of what happened to Abraham with his wife going down into Egypt, that they were they were fulfilled in a destiny by his descendants. Well, it follows through with the other events that we see taking place. For example, in the case of Jacob, how he divided his family into two camps, one which is represented by the leadership of Joseph and one which is going to be represented by the leadership of Judah. Thus, we have what happened in the history of Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There they are, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which dominates the life of Israel as a nation later on. And we see the formation of that it's the Messiah's intent to be the Messiah of both. Not just of one. He's going to be Messiah of the house of Israel. He's going to be Messiah of the house of Judah. And we know what the prophets have said. We know that before the dawning of the day, before the new day comes of the kingdom, these two houses will come together and they will be one. In the hand of the Lord. These are events that are destined for the descendants. And we can look back over the many years of history of Israel. We can see how it's all been working out. Even to this day. In fact, it's only in this generation. This generation alone, brethren. That we've seen for the very first time. The first elements of the house of Judah. And the house of Israel, truly, as the prophets have said, coming together for the first time. Because the prophets are very specific about how they must come together. Ephraim must join with Judah. They have to cease from doing three things. They have to cease from the idols of the nations. They have to cease from transgressing God's commandments. And they have to cease from the detestable. And they all will proclaim the same king and the same shepherd, and they will all return to the land together. And in the case of the example we saw last week, when Jacob returned to the land and had to confront his enemies, he had to wrestle with God one night, and then he came into the land, and if you look at the procession in which that he describes, he puts his his children out front with the wives, only there's three elements. That's the fascinating part of that story. He sends first the maids with their children, then he sends Leah with her children, then he sends Rachel with Joseph. Only he defined himself as being two camps. It looks like there's three divisions, though. And presents a very interesting question, which is defined by understanding the house of Judah and the house of Israel is really prophetically what he was talking about. Because there's a day coming when we'll all come back. We'll all come back together before the dawning of the day. And this breach that has been occurred in Israel, this division that took place, this great Perez, it will be over. It will end before the brightness of his coming. It's only for the first time in the Messianic movement that we have people who represent the house of Judah and others who represent the house of Israel coming together, sitting in the same assembly, worshiping the same God for the first time. 
And we're talking about a breach that has taken place that began 700 B.C. 2,700 years ago, this breach took place. And it's supposed to occur just before the dawning and just before the brightness of his coming. Only in this generation have we seen the first elements of that taking place. So it is true that what has happened with the patriarchs is now becoming the destiny of his descendants. The one thing that I would hope that you would gain from studying the Torah. I am not particularly interested, brethren, in you learning how to keep Sabbath. That would be nice if you did, but that's not my primary agenda. It's not my primary agenda that you learn to keep certain holidays, biblical holidays as opposed to secular holidays. That would be nice, but that's not the purpose. The real purpose is that you would gain the knowledge and the understanding and receive what is the real mystery of the Torah, which is the Messiah himself, that you would be enriched with him, with his purpose for you, that you would somehow discover by the knowledge of these things, you are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there are more than just Jews that are his descendants. And I'm not spiritualizing this and saying just by faith. I am saying to you that the house of Israel, when they were scattered into the nations, we have no idea who they are. There's no way to know except for one way. Whoever they are, at the end of the ages, at the end of the age of the Gentiles, before the brightness of his coming, The Spirit of God will move on those people, stir them, and they will join with the house of Judah. And they will join with the Torah and the commandments of God. And they will reclaim their heritage in their father Abraham. And they will be the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they won't all necessarily be Jews. And I would remind you that those of Joseph come from a multicolored coat. And so they're not all going to look alike, you know, when they show up. Quite honestly, brethren, my intent is not that you would become like me, that you wear a kippah, that you wear a talit, and you look and smell and act like a Jew. Rather, my intent would be that you would come to the knowledge of the Messiah and that you would truly eat of a piece of bread that you will never be hungry again, that you'll take a drink from a cup that you'll never be thirsty again, and you'll find out about the true bread from heaven and the cup of redemption that has been offered to the whole world through the story that comes from the Torah so that you'll understand, as Moses said, there's not an idle word in here. It's your very life. It's about you. And that we would finally stand up and be the people of God that we were called to be and that we all share the same destiny and heritage in. That's the purpose of the stories. That's the reason why we want to draw out and get you to pay attention and take note of it. 
It is your heritage and it belongs to you. So lay hold of it. Take claim to it. Be the people God created you to be. And be part of his great family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the story of Jacob and Joseph and all the brethren. And we would ask God that in our study of the Torah by your spirit, that you would raise us up and establish us and help us to see the Messiah in the life of Joseph. Help us, Lord, to see the pattern that we should follow of Judah to repent, that we would take note of the great wisdom of your plan, and that we would come to the understanding not only of those events that happened to them, but, Lord, that we'd come to an understanding of who we are and that there's a great destiny for us that's been prophetically pictured. That the truth is that these scriptures were written not just to document the story of the fathers, but rather to explain to the the descendants of them who we are and what life is about and what has been prepared for us. I thank you, Lord, for the story of Tamar, of Judah, and of her two sons born. I thank you, Lord, for the story of Joseph, because they both tell us great things about the Messiah, so that we'll have a sense of who he is, so that when the Messiah says things like, they will hate you, because they hated me without a cause, in order to fulfill the words of the law. Lord, that we'll understand that it was a story there in the Torah, that, and it shouldn't shock us when we have to come to terms with the realities of our life and that others are going to hate us without a cause because of our faith in you. That this is part of the destiny that comes with making that choice. But we also know, Lord, that those that choose you have chosen life and those that choose to hate have chosen death. We choose life, Lord. And I would ask, Lord, that you would look down with kindness upon this assembly, with loving kindness and mercy and grace upon every person here, every family representative. You know the situation in every one of their houses. You know all the difficulties, the traumas, the everything that's going on in there. And Lord, I would ask that you'd look down with kindness and forgive them, Lord. And that you'd bless them. And at this holiday season, Lord, as we light the candles of Hanukkah, of dedication, Lord, if it be possible that you might cause our hearts to be rededicated before you, that we might dedicate anew the altar of the living God that is in every one of our hearts, that we'd be new and fresh before you to serve you and to live out the meaning of who we are and where we come from and to enjoy this great destiny we have before us. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.